Um, I'm just going to start by reading, uh, by reading a couple of uh, scripture passages to you. So if you'd like to follow in um, Isaiah um, chapter uh, 55, we're going to read a few verses from there, and uh, then we're going to head on to uh, John chapter 6. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me, hear and your soul shall live. Then I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David." Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the leader, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who you do not know shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And that's Luke and John chapter 6, um, just reading from verses uh, 22. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there, except that one which his disciples had entered... And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread, after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labour for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to him, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. In verse 35, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So, um, as you will probably know, um, and maybe not if you're visiting um, with us this evening, I think we've got one visitor. Yeah, (laughs) good to have you with us. Um, um, but as you know, we're starting a series, really, where we're looking at the, um, the I Am statements of Jesus in the book of John. Um, today we're looking in particular about Jesus as the bread of life. Um, quite striking words, aren't they? I think these words hold a special significance for me because um, on my first um, Bible that I was given, which is an NIV, um, my parents... <laughs> I just, I just had to say that. But on the first Bible I was given, on the inside leaf, they had written, which is quite, quite touching actually, my parents had these words, you know, where Jesus talks about being the bread of life. Um, 
And it's one of those sort of phrases we see in the Bible that I think immediately grabs out and, and it's quite striking, isn't it? And um, it looks really good on, on Christian posters and cards and, and various things like that. So it's got a good, a good ring to it. But I think it's worth considering, what does Jesus actually mean by those words? And, 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 and I think in order to get the full force of those words, we need to consider... I'm going to take us on a little bit of a journey tonight. We're going to consider some other scriptural truths. There's four particular scriptural truths we're going to look at as we go through the Bible um, about this issue of Jesus being the bread of life. If we just think just now very briefly about the context of John 6, I mean, Jesus had made um, this statement really shortly after he'd fed the 5,000. So the Jews really were wanting more bread, really. They saw Jesus as a kind of a walking bakery. Um, they thought he was going to keep giving them more Hovis and Walburtons and they were going to have a never-ending supply of physical bread. Um, and perhaps that was due... Well, it was partly due to the fact that they had in their kind of collective memory um, how God had given them manna in the wilderness, how he'd provided for their physical needs. Um, but Jesus... He kind of speaks to the Jews and he speaks into their darkened spiritual understanding. And he kind of encourages them to labour for the food which um, doesn't, uh, doesn't perish. Um, the food that endures to eternal life, which he was talking obviously about believing in, in himself. I mean, the fact that Jesus is the bread of life, it really is a sacred... It's a mystery, isn't it? That we can never... There's so much richness in that that we can never fully plumb the depths of that this evening... Um, but I think, as I mentioned before, we need to just go back very briefly. It's not going to take long. This isn't a long message. Um, but I just want to go back and look at some fundamental ideas in the scriptures um, that kind of bring out this idea of, of Jesus being the bread of life and, and why that's important, why we need a bread of life. So I've got four truths I'm going to bring out tonight. Okay? Um, four truths. Truth number one. So, can write these down if you want. Not that they're words of gold at all, but you can write these down. Truth, truth number one. Truth number one is human beings are more than just an amalgamation of chemical compounds. I know that sounds ridiculous, but... <laughs> that's a bit of a mouthful. It's not very pithy, but... <coughs> well... Um, we, we know, don't we? We know, I mean, some of you guys are scientists, you know more, proper scientists, not just GPs, but, you know, we just write antibiotics. But, but some of you guys will know that, that there's four, four elements, really, that make up our body weight. These four elements are oxygen, hydrogen, carbon, and nitrogen. And between them, they make up 96.2% of who we are. We also know that the human body, around 50 to 70% of what we are is made of water. Um... So, really, if you reduce this down to what we are in physical terms, we're probably a couple of bits of coal and maybe, you know, a few pints of water um, and, and a few kind of metal elements. I mean, that kind of view has led to a very reductionistic worldview on the, pro- pro- on the part of certain atheists. Now, I wouldn't normally do this, so just forgive me, but this is part of the context. But that kind of thinking has led atheists to come out with with this very reductionistic worldview of what we are as human beings. So one of them is a guy called, I'm going to quote tonight, is a guy called Peter Atkins. And he's an Oxford chemist. And he said this, so, I've always thought that I was insignificant. Getting to know the size of the universe, I see just how insignificant I really am. And I think that the rest of the human race ought to realise just how insignificant it is. I mean, we're just a bit of slime 
on the planet belonging to the sun. So that's, <clears throat> that's quite a bleak assessment of life, isn't it? A bleak, reductionistic assessment of the value of human beings um, and, of, and the view of human nature, really. And also this view kind of ultimately leads to the... In this view, the ultimate futility of, of human existence and the real lack of any enduring significance to our lives. I don't know whether any one of you have heard... I'm not going to quote atheists all night, but I don't know whether any of you have heard of a guy called um, Bertrand Russell. He was a um, British philosopher. He died in about 1970. Um, he was Cambridge-educated um, rather than Oxford. But he said this... Um, just worth listening to us. It kind of puts into context what, what we're talking about tonight. He said, that man is a product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collaborations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual beyond the grave. That all the labours of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet nearly so certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. So that was what Bertrand Russell said um, as a quote from his um, writing of Free Man's Worship. <clears throat> so it makes for very gloomy reading, doesn't it? Um, so not only does this kind of materialistic, atheistic conception of human nature, of just seeing us as a collection of atoms, not only does it kind of demean human value, um, but it also puts a pay to there being the idea of any enduring significance to our lives at all, beyond our physical lifespan. Um, and so as a direct consequence of this thinking, which we see all around us, man really becomes just a physical machine... And the sole object of his life just becomes the gratification of physical desires, basically. And, and the philosophy of life can easily be, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And Paul talks about this, doesn't he, um, in 2 Corinthians 15, verse 32. He talks about those who have no hope of the resurrection. He says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So that kind of depressing view of life and view of human nature... Um, and in a sense, you know, the Jews in this passage, they were thinking purely in terms of their, they wanted more bread. That's what they were concerned about. They wanted more bread. Their gods were their stomach. They wanted more bread. Um, but what I want to do now is to turn aside from that view um, and consider really, just very briefly, what's the biblical view of, of human nature? Who, who are we according to the Bible? Who are we according to the scriptures? So you can follow if you want to, or you can tell. We're going to look at um, Genesis um, chapter 1 and verse 27. And it says there, God formed man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
So this shows immediately that there's an unbridgeable gap between us as human beings and animals. There's something very different about the kind of life that we, um, that we enjoy as human beings. We're uniquely made in the image of God. And there's three particular characteristics being made in the image of God. There's three particular characteristics that stand, us, stand out and make us who we are as human beings. And those three characteristics are personality which kind of encompasses our knowledge, feelings, will, our self-consciousness, our self-awareness, morality, the fact that we can make moral decisions and value judgments, and spirituality, the fact that we have a communion, uh, we can have communion with God. So all these things indicate to us that at a very fundamental level, we are spiritual rather than just a machine, just a machine that fulfills physical appetites. The New Testament also confirms this view in multiple places. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, Paul talks about human nature as really being composed of three components. He talks about a spirit, a soul, and a body. And interestingly, they're in that order. Um, So when we get things out of order, we tend to put the body first. Um, But God's order is spirit, soul, and, and, and body in that order. So that's truth number one. Um, As I say, just going to whip through these truths tonight. But that's a fundamental truth of the Bible. Sounds very basic. It's just 101, isn't it? But it's fundamental to actually understanding um, the bread of life. So we're spiritual beings. Our deepest needs are spiritual. That's truth number two. Truth number two is that the deepest needs of humanity are spiritual. The deepest needs of humanity are spiritual. So... That's what being formed in the image of God. That's part of being formed in the image of God. We have these spiritual needs. And that encompasses a lot of different desires and longings that are deeply in the recesses of our, of our heart. But scripture talks about some of these needs. It talks about some of these longings that we have as human beings. And some of the, no, some of the most notable ones I just want to talk to you about briefly um, this evening. So number one is the desire for something of eternal significance. So it says in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11, it says that God has put eternity into the hearts of of people. God has put eternity into the hearts of people. So this means that there's something instinctive in, in the heart of every human being that longs for something of eternal significance that goes beyond just their physical lifespan. And that's something God has put there. He's put that desire for something of eternal significance. The second thing I think we can see, these are, this is an exhaustive list, this is just some of the main ones the scriptures bring out. The second spiritual need of humanity is the longing for moral justification. It says in Proverbs 20 and verse 6, it says, Most men will proclaim his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. So most people, not everybody, but by and large, most people have this innate desire to want to justify themselves and to want to attain a standard of righteousness, or at least, if they can't really make it, appear to attain a standard of righteousness. That comes again from that being made in the image of God, from that morality that we have, um, or sense of morality. We can't attain it, but we have that sense of morality. Thirdly, I think this is a very important and interesting one, is the need for forgiveness. 
David prays, doesn't he? And this kind of heart-rending plea, basically, in Psalm 51. He says, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And in David's case, it's hinted that this sin... The internal torment that he had from this unforgiven sin had actually caused physical manifestations in his body. It says that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. So he had this overwhelming sense of guilt. But actually, interesting, I was doing a bit of reading around this, but this innate sense of guilt and a strong desire for forgiveness, it's a universal human phenomenon which is attested to by psychologists everywhere. This is a universal thing. One psychologist says, says the following, um, which is interesting. They say, we can deal with the internal tension of conscious, conscience by either changing our behaviour to fit our standards, moral improvement, or by changing our standards to fit our behaviour, rejecting old rules. However, existential guilt will not yield to these techniques. No matter how good we become, we still feel guilty. Moral improvement does not cure our existential guilt. So even psychologists recognise this universal phenomenon of existential guilt. Just a deep, innate sense of guilt, even if it's not in response to something particular. Of course they would deal with it in in a way differently um, to, to how... But that's still a reality, this sense of existential guilt deeply within the human heart. And finally, the fourth spiritual longing or desire I want to bring out from the scriptures is the longing for a relationship with God. And you know, I think it was the Holy Spirit tonight. I walked in here and, um, and Josh was playing as the deer and I thought I was going to suggest that he played that, he played that song and, and that's the scripture I was going to refer to here. Because David says in Psalm 42, he says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul pants for God, for the living God. When shall I appear before God? So there's this thirst, this desire for an intimate relationship with God. And that didn't end when Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden. Humankind has been you know, pursuing this relationship with God ever since. So truth number three, and we're, we're working through, but truth number three, it's not very pity I'm afraid. But truth number three is there's no end to the sinful and destructive ways in which mankind has sought to meet these spiritual needs. These are legitimate spiritual needs because God has placed them there. Um, So they're not wrong in themselves. They're just innate part of being human, basically. Um, But despite atheism saying that we're just very highly evolved animals, um, people have have found that unsatisfying. Um, And just saying that those needs aren't there hasn't made those needs go away. People have continued to look for solutions to those deep longings within themselves. Um, So we see this with all of those needs, don't we? We see the need for eternal significance. So we see that in people, don't we, who are frantically trying to carve out a career for themselves or people who are trying to make a contribution to the field in which they're working, something that will outlast their name. We see it in parents... who live through their children. They're desperately hoping that they can kind of live on in an almost semi-reincarnated form in their children. That's a desire for something of eternal significance when God says that he's put eternity in our hearts. So they're all ways in which people are doing that. The need for moral justification. So we see that all the time, don't we? People parading the fact that they've given to charity 
um, that they're involved, they're an upstanding member of the community. They're seeking for ways to meet these needs all the time. The need for forgiveness. Um, so atheists would attempt to, to deal with that need, I guess, just by denying the existence of God, denying that there's any objective reality to that need for forgiveness. But obviously there are other ways people can deal with that forgiveness. I mean, we said psychologists recognise this need. Well, maybe pe- some people are using psychological techniques to, as a form of denial in some cases um, to deal with this issue of forgiveness. Um, so they're dealing with the symptoms in some cases and not the true cause of the guilt. And how about the longing for a relationship with God? How do people deal with that longing? Well, I was <coughs> quite interested the other day. I was, I was looking at um, a YouTube video um, from Lausanne. Is that the, that big evangelical conference? Is it Lausanne? And they were giving some statistics and they were talking about um, religiosity in the world. And that they were saying that actually the world is becoming more religious, not less. That might surprise you. But overall the world is becoming more religious. The 70s and 80s, because you had so many countries that were under the grip of communism and were atheistic, they said that in those times about 80% of the world total world population was religious. But they estimated by 2030 it's going to be like 90-something, 95 or higher percent. So overall the world is becoming more and more religious. And even though in the West organised religion is, is becoming you know, less prominent, less of a thing. We've witnessed this huge explosion, haven't we, of cults, of Eastern mysticism, of various other forms of spirituality, because people aren't basically happy with what guys like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and all these other guys put on a platter. People aren't happy for that um, because they realise it's complete inability to feel that spiritual need, those spiritual needs that they have. Um, and ultimately, all of these things I've mentioned, all of them lead to an aching dissatisfaction, basically, and ultimately to a crushing despair. That's what they lead to, all of these ways. The Bible talks about people, man's efforts to fill this spiritual void. The Bible speaks about this really clearly, especially in the prophets. It says in Jeremiah, it says, Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And in the passage we read in Isaiah, it says, Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy. Why do you do it? Why, why spend on these things that are so futile? But you know, this evening, that leads us on to truth number four. Truth number four. Truth number four is the spiritual longings for man as a spiritual being can only be satiated in Jesus, the true bread of life. We began with Jesus and we're ending with him. Going back to John chapter 6, we can see that the Jews, they didn't recognise that their deepest needs were spiritual. And in verse 28, they seem to partly cotton on to this truth. But they then mistakenly think that they've got to labour for this food. They say we've got to labour to earn this spiritual food. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? So it kind of took them, taken them a little while, but they'd eventually realised, okay, you know, we kind of realised our main needs aren't 
you're right, Jesus, you know, they're not, they're not physical needs. They're spiritual needs. They're these needs you're talking which are deep down within. Um, but then they start saying, well, what do we have to do to earn this spiritual food? You know, what, what do we have to do that we may work the works of God? But Jesus goes on, doesn't he? And he says, um, the work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. He has sent. So the way to deal with our spiritual famine, the way to deal with this, is not through self-effort, but it's through feasting on Jesus Christ and the abundant spiritual feast he provides. Every spiritual longing of the human heart is fully assuaged in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Isn't that good? Isn't that good news? He fu- listen, he fulfills the need for something of eternal significance. He fulfills that need. Colossians 3 verse 4 says, You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. So he fulfills that need. Our life is hidden in Christ. We're going to be with him in glory for eternity. We have that need for eternal significance met in Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? Um, He fulfills the desire for moral justification. It says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. So that need that we have to always prove ourselves and justify ourselves. Well, you know, we don't really need to do that anymore because I can't be any more righteous because I've got the righteousness of Christ. He fulfills the need for forgiveness. It says in Colossians 1, verse 13 to 14, it says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. So that need that we have for forgiveness, it's met in Jesus. This is why he's the bread of life. He meets all of these needs that we have. And finally, he fulfills the longing that we have for a relationship with God. It says in Colossians 1 and verse 22, it says, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So we were once alienated. Since Eden we've been alienated from God. Um, But through Christ um, we were enemies but now we've been reconciled through the body of Jesus Christ.